Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. This is episode 28 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast and I'm your host, Ugo Che. The true value of travel photography, I believe, lies more in giving the viewer access to environments, communities and cultures that would otherwise stay hidden from the eyes of many, rather than in proposing endless variations of the same old cliches. The real travel photographer, unlike the tourist, works hard to capture images that are often not in plain sight. My guest for this episode of the podcast, Robert Van Kuzveld, is a passionate travel photographer from Australia who has a deep knowledge of the culture and tradition of the Geikos and Maikos of Kyoto. By striving to really get to know those women and developing an intimate connection with them, he has managed to capture some sublime images that go beyond the surface to reveal their inner world. We discussed at length about what is necessary to approach those communities, and how much work and patience it took Robert to produce the images that are contained in his latest book, Geikon Maiko of Kyoto. We also briefly talked about that other place that is reputed to be quite inaccessible by many, the Kingdom of Bhutan. If you like this episode, I encourage every one of you to tell your friends about it and uh, to leave us an honest review on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome, Robert. It's nice to have you here today. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. So I, I became familiar with your work. Uh, and I've been following you for uh, for a while. And I was especially intrigued by the work you did around a couple of communities that to us Westerners look a bit elusive and difficult to, to reach, to, to approach. And especially one is that of the uh, correct me if I say the names wrong, is that of the Geikos and Maikos of Kyoto in Japan. Um, most people will typically refer to them as geishas. And the other one, we will talk about the other one later, just not to, to spoil the, the suspense here. So you have a book out and you have a series of photographs about, uh, about Kyoto and about that specific community. Can you tell us a bit about it? Well, the the background really is that I, I went to Japan for the first time about four years ago and went to Kyoto and realized at, t- at that time that it was possible to at least get some contact and to photograph uh, what I thought of as geisha at the time, but which I've come to more properly call geiko, geiko and meiko. Um the background to all of that is that I've been interested in deeper projects, more in-depth. It's, it's, I think of myself as a travel and cultural photographer, but you can kind of slide over the surface of things, and at a certain point, it just gets more interesting to try to get a deeper story. So I began, and then more led to more led to more. How do you approach those communities in practice? Uh, Are they open to being approached by a photographer who says, I would like to do a book or a series of photos about you? 
Well, hmm, yes and no. Um, that uh, uh, first of all, it's useful to have a local guide. I'm a big believer in hiring what photographers call fixers, but what people may call themselves guides or interpreters. But you need the right kind of people. So I began finding someone good, and they there are five uh, districts called uh, Hannah. Anamachi or Kagai more properly and um, they had a contact in one of them and um, then after I succeeded there uh, to make a beginning then we found another contact and then through luck and perseverance uh, more and more came. Um, one of the things photographers and journalists often don't have is time and patience and Luckily, I have both of those, <laughs> and and it takes time, you know. People, if you turn up and say, "Hey, I'd like to write a story about you," they're gonna fear the worst. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they're gonna think, "Here's some person who's got a story already written in their head." They're gonna ask us questions and then write the story that's written in their head. That's their experience, and so they're right to be suspicious. Yeah. Any community. Um, because they have that experience. So um, gradually more things have become possible. I, I'm still not on the inside, but I'm not completely on the outside. I see. So what is their story, in, uh, their true story well, in particular? Well, the true story is, is that it's a, a, a tradition that's existed for many hundreds of years. Um, and that it's a form of cultural performance Um, that is really hard to pin down, unfortunately. It's, it's um, uh, because their, their background is, is seeped in history and, and Japanese history specifically, and they study dance and music and tea ceremony and all of those things combine into a kind of a living performance. Um, like a performance art and so depending on how you experience that you'll think that's what it is so some people will ex experience that at hosted evenings at kind of small parties where they're really very skilled hosts um, adding to a proper evening and that really is tied into a Japanese tradition around being good hosts But other people will experience it as music, and so they'll say that's what it is, or as dance, and so on. So um, it's a kind of cultural way of life. It's part of a richer tradition. How's that sound? Sounds perfectly good. I mean, uh... okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the one of the things in the West, of course, is there's this sort of idea. Um, which is really a long-standing Orientalist distortion that, that people say, aren't they prostitutes? And they never were. Um, this is a kind of distortion slash fabrication and fundamentally racist. Mm. Um, so, but that idea is so endemic and that book, who I won't mention, um, conflated, you know, true stories with false stories with ancient history. Um, The good thing is it's got people interested in the culture. The bad thing is the ignorance is 
extensive. Yes, still, uh, I'm, my perception of it is that it, uh, it, it's a tradition. It has nothing to do with prostitution, as you said, but uh, it's still very part of a male-dominated society. I mean, uh, I mean, traditionally, correct me if I'm wrong again, as I said, it's uh, oh. from, from the outside, uh, those performances were at least originally uh, directed uh, mostly to, to, to a male clientele. Well, yeah, that, that's, I guess that's true, but so is everything, yeah. you know, in every culture, because we're saying traditionally, and in that saying, we're saying years ago, or in the past, and if we say that about just any form of anything, it was male-dominated. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, unfortunately, when we look at cultures other than our own, we're much more likely to confuse the past and the present. You know, when we look at our own culture, we think, oh, that was, you know, back in the days of sepia film or before film or you know 300 years ago that's got nothing to do with the present but when we look at another culture we jump so quickly from yeah. um, ancient to modern and you know Japan's a modern country yeah. so uh, going back to, to the approach to those communities uh, you said you need some uh, some insiders to help you get uh, approach them and yeah. so on and then uh, what happens? How did you set up your shoots? Did you go to the places where the Geikos and Maikos train or uh, or leave? Well, that's harder to do. So you can, um, in a sense, make a booking for a photo shoot. Yeah. Um, and then you need to find a suitable location. And suitable location, you know, that's kind of well regulated. They want something traditional and Japanese. They don't you know, they're, they're managing their own brand within the five districts. Mm -hmm. And so um, you'll hire someone, they'll come, you don't know what they're going to wear, but you know they'll be wearing kimono, but you don't know the color, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and I found I needed to hire each person at least twice um, just to get enough range. And when I found people I could work with, I would hire them again. Um, and I worked hard to find suitable venues and then I had to work with lights because most of the non sort of semi indoor outdoor venues are kind of dark and, and lit with, you know, yellow lights. So I started bringing more and more lights um, just to manage the situation. And, you know, I ended up with a whole lot of gear in Japan um, using um, continuous lighting, using LEDs. So I, I have to apologize because I didn't ask you to, to introduce yourself, but you're, you do not live in Japan. You live in Australia presently. Is that right? Right. I live in Japan and uh -huh. I live in Australia, I should say. See, there you go. Um, but I've been to Japan about 10 times over the last four years. And I travel a lot. I travel maybe four or five months of the year. Do you want more background now? Um, no. Yeah, if you want, it's, it's okay. We will talk about other destinations later um, so okay. apologies for mixing things a bit but I think it's, right. uh, it's still interesting so uh, yes please give us some background about well, you well, and we'll, no, we will I, go back I'm, to the Geikos and Maikos okay I'm in my mid-60s I was a psychotherapist for many years so I was a counsellor psychotherapist I ran training and counselling and psychotherapy and taught in master's programs and so I have had one profession and then for the last uh, 
um, 20 years, but certainly the last 10 years full time, I've been back into photography after photography in my childhood. And I guess a background in counseling psychotherapy makes you able to see some things more easily when photographing mm -hmm. people. And I fought that idea that, you know, my original training was influencing me as a photographer, but it's clear now, I admit it, it does. <laughs> um, so that, that, that was just a kind okay. of a bit of a context, you know, that I haven't been doing this all my life and it's my second profession and I'm not desperate to make a living or pay yeah. a mortgage, you know, that's sorted. So yeah, you get the, the leisure to pursue the, the subjects that you, yeah, that you really I, love. I'm full time and my first client is myself, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but, but you're, you're still a demanding client, I suspect, I guess this. Uh, I'm a very yeah. demanding client. I'm probably a very irritating client, uh, <laughs> but uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you, do, you did some, some work, you did a lot of work from what I understand to, uh, around these, uh, these communities and we, work which culminated in a book. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the book? Uh, I, I was reading it, got a very important award. So maybe it's yes, to, it, to mention. Yes, it got the, the Canon AIPP Photo Book of the Year last year in the, you know, this is in the Australian Professional Photography um, Association. And, um, well, that was fantastic. And, and it came as a, after a long process of working. I, I, I've been working on the project and simultaneously working on sort of mock-ups of the book. And, you know, I'm probably at full mock-up number 10. Um, I was just trying to um, do a better and better job. Uh, um, I tell this story that about two years ago, I, I my son came back from London and we went out and had a, um, a wine together. And he looked at the book and he said, yeah, that's quite good, Dad. Uh, <laughs> why don't you do it uh, the best you possibly can this time? This is how children can be a great gift. So he just said, yeah, you know, it's a nice book yeah. of photographs. You know, can you essentially, can you make it more? So I kept making new drafts and working on the text and polishing the images and going back to shoot what was missing. So you did all um, the, the design and, and writing work? Yeah, itself. I had designers um, uh, that I worked with. Um, but, you know, I'm a big stakeholder in the design as well. Um, but obviously, a professional designer, some of the it's kind of specialist things, texts and, and uh, the kind of chapter uh designs you know we discussed um so i you know photographers think that they can make a book by making a set of images in a book and it obviously it it, it all too often looks like someone who's not a designer made the book mm -hmm. um, i know, and, I, know. Um, I, I did a yeah, couple you know. of books myself uh, <laughs> you know, they don't they, look they, at all like professionally designed books yeah, there's, a, there's another notch or two and, you know, just right at the end, lots of tweaking just to make sure everything was right mm -hmm. yeah. and working with pairs of images and the sequencing of images and um, all of that. And I've just come back from an exhibition in Kyoto of my work and um, I had to rework everything for that yeah. um, as well. 
you want to know more about the book or no or, it's okay uh, we will uh, put a link in the in the show notes so people can um, can know where to find it uh if you just want to just to mention your um, uh your website is yep is is robert van or one word dot com okay we will uh, we will put links in the show notes so people can find it no in um i was saying in uh uh, tradition here of jumping back and forth between topics, <laughs> putting the cart before the horse, as they say. Uh, we didn't actually explain what what do we mean by those terms, geikos and maiko. What what is it? What does that exactly okay, mean? So, what is so, the difference? Um, yeah. So um, a maiko is is someone in training. So for the first five years four or five years someone joins at in kyoto at about 15 or 16 and um is then once they've kind of had a trial period then they've committed to a very full experience six and a half days a week days of training mm-hmm. nights of working um so they make their debut as a maiko early in that process then they're a maiko there are stages along the way and then after about five years if they're ready and want to then they might make a debut as a geiko so you know there are lots of distinctions along the way so like a first year maiko only wears the red lipstick on the bottom lip not on the top lip um a, a, a geiko is wearing a wig not their own hair in a elaborate hairstyle um the kind of costume changes, the kind of shoes change. Um, but it, on top of that... A, the, is it a full-time profession once you have... Uh, Absolutely. No, no, yeah. you're full-time, more than full-time. Um, yeah. No, you're... So just to, again, to dispel another possible misconception that people might have is that those women will uh, just have a, an office job, nine to five, and then at night or in the weekends, they will dress up for tourists. That's not what it is. That, that's, that's very correct. Um, what's confusing for visitors to Kyoto is that there, you, there's been a tradition, you know, there's been an idea that you can dress up in kimono um, for the day. So Japanese people like dressing up in kimono and young people will come to Kyoto and will wear kimono. Well, that's kimono. But there are also a number of studios offering the chance to dress up as in costume, as, as Maiko, and, and some other costumes, but mostly Maiko. So those people are the people that are happy to be photographed on, on some locations. They're not Maiko. Often they look too old. They can't walk properly. Um, but they create some confusion for amateur photographers at least. Back yeah. to the real thing. Well, it's more than full time. Um, the the you know you start your day. You you live in a house when you're a micro, and that house is supporting you and paying for your training and has uh, all the kimonos. A, a typical kimono outfit will cost somewhere between thirty thousand and fifty thousand US dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And you need to have 13 of those at least. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a very 
expensive, serious process. There are five uh, districts and each has their own college and you're training with master teachers in all of the, the skills. And then in the evenings, you're performing. And then on top of that, in the season, each of these districts or Kagai are putting on big stage performances. And they might run for two weeks or four weeks. They might be three to four performances a day. So you're in rehearsal flat out for that before that. And then when they're on, your bookings go up. So you're rehearsing, performing, working huge hours. And then and it's exhausting. Um, but it's a hell of a commitment. Yeah. When you join... Um, you know, they'll tend to say, well, you know, you can't have a mobile phone. You can't, inverted commas, cross the river. You can't go into the kind of more commercial part of Kyoto. You're, you're kind of um, kept within the boundaries of the community until you're sort of thoroughly comfortable there. And then slowly you're able to be more independent. And when you're independent, well, you can be more yourself. But it's very rare to see people not in some form of um, traditional dress. Yeah. You do, but um, you need to know who they are because they look like everyone else. But yeah. they have at the most half a day off a week. I see. Aside from Kyoto, uh, where this tradition, as I understand, is very much lively, are there other cities in Japan yeah, that have a similar uh, level of... Uh, n not, not a similar level. The, the, there's only... The, the, this business of being able to start at 15 or 16 and have a kind of a micro stage, that's really Kyoto. I think there's a couple of other small areas, whereas in the rest you start as Geiko, you probably, as Geisha, you, 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 so Geiko and Maiko are the Kyoto terms. Mm -hmm. In the rest you would be more, in most of the rest you would be known as a Geisha. And you probably came to training beforehand, so you have some training in traditional arts, and you might join at 18 or 19 or 20. I see. Um, and sometimes even later. And there are a few Westerners um, at any one time. There's one or two Westerners these days. It's, the, the, the tradition is still strong in Kyoto, um, and then it gets more complicated. There are other towns, and there are kind of a... Um, more casual version in some of the spa towns. Uh -huh. uh. Okay, so that was a really fascinating insight into this, uh, as I said, and kind of elusive world. And I would like to, to thank you for that. And okay. And to, to send people to, we will send people to, to your book if they want to know more. Right. right. I, I would, for the, the time that we still have uh, for this interview, I would like to talk about another community or location that appears uh, a bit elusive to us Westerners, and that is Bhutan. Uh, can you tell us a bit about this uh, this country? You have a book out on Bhutan yep. as well. How do you yep, go Bhutan there? Bhutan Heartland. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, the elusivity is a kind of strange phenomena. Bhutan was closed up until the 70s, and you know, it's a tiny country, less than a million people, um, somewhere between Tibet and India, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, as such, it, as, to, as Tibet got more complicated with China and India was incorporating some of the other independent countries, Bhutan did a lot to 
get itself solid as an independent country. And part of that was opening up to tourism. And it took advice at that time to say, let's, if you're going to have tourism in such a small country, let's have high value tourism. Let's not just let the backpackers come in like Nepal Mm. and kind of overrun the place as it was in those days. Now, that means that you can travel in Bhutan so long as you have a guide. You, you pay something like $250, $270 a day, depending on the size of your party. And for that, you get guide and driver and transport and most hotel accommodation, not the um, ultra top uh, hotels, but so most of the tour is covered in that day. Mm-hmm. Now, what's puzzling is that the world keeps thinking that it's $250, you get nothing for it. You know, it's got yeah. this kind of – but it's $250 and that covers most of your costs. Yeah, it's, it's not like um, it's, a, it's a tax that you have to pay. It's, no, uh, it's not a tax. It's, yeah. well, you know, a third of it does go to the government, but that builds the roads and, and builds the infrastructure. Yeah. So it, it's – really an ideal structure for managing tourism because for example if if i take a tour there we're traveling in cars um we have only two people to a car we have we hire you know with six cars we'll have 10 people that we're hiring but you know there's me as a guide in in um, a photo guide in one car and maybe my wife so we have four other guides six other drivers all of whom are top rate all the money is going into the country, whereas, you, you know, you look at tourism in so many other places, you know, people come in with their own tour companies and the money goes back to the country that uh, they're coming from and you go, you know. So what, what, is, uh, what are the highlights of a visit to Bhutan? What's so great about well, the country? It's, a, it's an intact uh, country and the high part of it, the Himalayan part of it, is is very solidly traditionally tantric buddhist mm. so it's a living buddhist culture um very strong cultural um location and you're driving up and down the passes um in the sort of low, lower himalayas so it's everything that you look for in tibet but without the political problems um that are there and with a very intact culture um It's a stunning place to, to travel in. Yeah. Um, there's really one long road, um, which is not always in good repair. Um, so, you know, you're really making excursions off that road. And depending on your time, you either go all the way along it and out into India or you go halfway along it and come back. Um, now there are some flights. So, you know, you can see a lot of Bhutan in two weeks. Yeah, it's and a small country. It's a small country and, you know, visually very rich. And if you get, a, you know, one of a good guide that knows photographers, um, then you get lots of good opportunities. You used to, to lead tours there? Yeah, I still yeah. lead tours. But, uh, you know, at the moment, the next tour Peter Eastway is leading and he's led tours with me before. Um, I'll probably lead tours again, but so will Peter. Um I have good friends there, so I like to go there at least once a year, and I'm working on other projects there as well mm-hmm. um, so over time. Looking forward to see your the outcome of your next project. I'm sure it will be as, uh, 
as great as the the previous ones uh, which uh, well i hope so but uh, it's not always easy to find a, a project that's sustaining and you mm-hmm. know has the depth that you need yeah um yeah bhutan is a really a great country to visit you know okay um, yeah all right so that was a really fascinating conversation i think we had today and uh as I said, we get, got to dispel, I think, I hope, we got to dispel some myths and urban legends about uh, the, the Geikos and Maikos of Japan and about Bhutan. So I would like to, to thank you for that. Is there anything else you would like to, to add before we, uh, we say goodbye? I, m- I might just talk a little bit about something behind the exhibition, yeah. which is more about this. It's pertinent to taking to making images as a traveler. That, that my exhibition was called Seeing Geiko, and there was a particular room that was particularly thinking about how um, the pictures in your mind, the ideas in your mind, get in the way of seeing another culture. So with Geiko, if you're a Westerner, all the kind of false ideas get in the way of seeing the artistry. If you're a Japanese person, you're likely to have, uh, Japanese have an idea about cuteness, kawaii. Um, And so they take a lot of cute pictures of Maiko, which again doesn't um, emphasize the artistry, which is really at the core of them. But I'm wanting to make a more general point, which is that you have to work hard as a photographer to sort of undo the constructs that you have Mm -hmm. when you're looking at another culture, because otherwise that's all you'll see. Or you'll see what's there, but you won't know that you're seeing it. And so your images will be less than they might have been. Yeah. Uh, because reflect more more of you as a photographer than an yeah I mean obviously subject. everything reflects that but yeah. um, you don't want it to be too too much two dimensional you know mm-hmm. uh, too extreme and that takes a lot of work you know in Japan you think it's like this that I know it's like that that I know well actually it's not like anything that you know it's like Japan mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's much more relevant to think about their tradition and their culture. That will give you more insight. And that's true, I suppose, of every culture. Um, but, of course, we, you know, research that's, is hard. <laughs> that's definitely true. And uh, I think, unfortunately, much of travel photography nowadays is uh, made by people who go to a country, go to a place for uh, for a few days, and then they are sometimes more interested in uh, uh Increasing the number of countries they visited so that they can sort of brag about it on on social media. Yeah, say, well, I've been to hundred countries, and yeah, and I haven't... always think, how long? You know, <laughs> how long were you there? Because you know, I have to keep going back to the same countries in order to do them any kind of justice. I you could, look, you know, you can't yeah. you can't turn up for three days and no, see no, a place. I would, if, if I were to to. Count the number of countries I've been to. I could mention Serbia because I've been to Belgrade Airport for two hours. So yes, <laughs> that counts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, so uh, you know, it, I don't like doing research before I travel, but that means then I have to travel many times and do research between trips. You mm-hmm. know, so the first trip I might go in without a lot of research. I'm not saying that's a good way to do it, but 
now I'll do more and more research. And I also work on my own. I work to actively deconstruct my own blind spots. And yeah. uh, That's very important, I think. I'm, uh, a good reminder for, for listeners that it's, uh, travel is more than about going to, to a place for two days and then uh, coming home with a bunch of photos. It, it takes, uh, if you really want to, to make great travel photography, it takes uh, time, research, dedication. And as you said, learning to see with the eyes of, uh, of somebody who is not you. In a way. Yeah, yeah, paradox. But there you go. Yeah. Okay. So thanks well, very again. Very nice talking to you. Yeah. Very, very nice talking very to you. Nice. And, uh, thank you to your listeners. Thanks for and, your time. Um, and, yep. I'll continue following your blog. And thank you very much. And we'll uh, we'll put all the links to to your books and uh, your exhibitions in the in the show notes, so people can uh, can get to to know more about you. And uh, uh, for now, thank you very much. Um, take care. Okay, all the best.